Hello and welcome to The Local Authority, the podcast by Local Government Chronicle. Each month we bring together leaders and changemakers from within and around local government to discuss the most significant social challenges facing the sector. If you enjoy this podcast, please do leave us a rating on the podcast platform of your choice and recommend this episode to your colleagues. You can keep up to date with all the latest in local government news at lgcplus.com. Welcome to The Local Authority, the podcast from Local Government Chronicle. This episode we're going to be discussing fiscal devolution. What is it? Could it happen? And what would that mean for local government? Of course, it won't be news to LGC readers that the UK is one of the most centralised countries in the world and local authorities enjoy few revenue-raising powers when compared with their counterparts in other developed nations. In recent years, calls have been growing for local authorities to be given powers to set new taxes or take control of elements of the existing tax base. However, central government has so far resisted these calls. My panel today is made up of individuals who have done some really deep thinking about how fiscal devolution to English local government could work in practice. They are Jamie Driscoll, Mayor of the North of Tyne Combined Authority, Jessica Studder, Deputy Chief Executive of New Local, and Ross Moody, Research Analyst at the Centre for Progressive Policy. So welcome everyone. And so just to kick us off, can we can we discuss this question? What is fiscal devolution um, and Jessica can I come to you first on that one? Oh well it's a good question because it does refer to a, a broad range of options but I think generally it means the ability to generate more taxes locally and to have more control over how that money is spent I would say. Um, Jamie how, how do you what's your kind of interpretation of fiscal devolution what does it mean to you? I often end up having to explain this to people in an everyday context, not the, the well-informed readers of the local government chronicle who know this stuff inside out. Um, and I think one of the most useful ways of describing it is, imagine as an individual, if government said, there's your housing allowance, you're only allowed to spend on housing. There's your food allowance, you're only allowed to spend on food. And instead say, look, it's your money, you decide how to spend it and use your own judgments. And that, I think, is the number one thing. We all pay our taxes. They go straight into the Treasury, who then dole it back out to us. And I think we'd get much better value for money if we were allowed to join up the way we spend our own money. Yeah, sure. So that that's a kind of, as well as a sort of raising taxes or control over existing taxes, just sort of freedom over existing, more freedom over existing budgets and things like we've seen with the, we're seeing with the trailblazer deals, I guess, in Greater Manchester and, and West Midlands. Well, that's right. I mean, if we look at the, the spending pots that we've seen on the Shared Prosperity Fund or the uh, Community Renewal Fund and this rounds of competitive bidding, it serves no one. Uh, and I'm sure that's something we'll come on to. And, and Ross, I know the Centre for Progressive Policy just done a big piece of work um, and part of that was looking at, at fiscal devolution. So what? how do you define it? What What does it mean to, to you? I think, I think the way that I've thought about it and CPP has thought about it when we're doing work is, you know, thinking devolution of what fiscal policy actually is. So fiscal policy broadly is the rules that sort of govern taxation, spending and borrowing. So, you know, logically fiscal devolution is the devolution of some sort of power control over either taxation, spending or borrowing. It's probably how I'd define it. Um, your, your report sort of made this recommendation of, I think it was 2% of income tax to be devolved to local government. What was this thinking behind that there was a lot of thinking the one behind it um so one of the things that so 
So one of the things that we're thinking about is, you know, what what is sort of between where we are now and then, you know, full-fledged, you know, full-scale fiscal devolution, which you might sort of define as being, you know, allowing sort of local leaders to sort of freely set their own taxes, diverge from tax rates, um, keep quite a substantial chunk of, you know, taxes which they sort of generate in their area. That would be like full-scale. But then thinking about where we are now and what are some of the first inroads that you could sort of make to sort of get to a fuller, you know, a more complete um, state of fiscal devolution over the longer term. What are some of the things that you could do first? In our recommendation, what we try to do is also account for, you know, include some sort of redistribution within it. Because one of the common criticisms that you always get against fiscal devolution is, that, you know, richer areas have got more money. They will just run away from, from poorer areas. And, you know, that is a real concern. I think it is. But I think it is something which is a lot of other countries have managed to sort of navigate that process and sort of do it design that you know design a policy quite well so i think that's sort of you know the two things thinking what could we do first what could we do sort of over the next couple of years time which might make a little bit of sense and sort of have a really positive impact on local governments and their budgets and what they'll be able to do with it i suppose with that longer term view but also accounting for inequality and redistribution within that as well has been the basis of our thinking yeah so Jamie, did you want to come in on that? I think Ross is absolutely right here. You've got to think about not only what would be the ideal when we get there. Um, local authorities, 70-80% of the money is going on adult social care. Well, why isn't that part of a national system anyway, like the NHS? Why is your care dependent upon councils being able to balance that budget against parks or leisure? Um, it shouldn't be. And... We've also got to think, though, how you get something through. I mean, I remember talking to a Treasury minister when I was first doing some work on this and saying, why won't you devolve anything? And they said, well, we don't trust you. Um, Not you, Jamie. We don't trust anyone. We're the Treasury. It's our job not to trust people. Um, And so it's about getting those things where we can start to make a difference straight away. The paper I wrote, which is available in all good bookshops, um, if you have a look, uh, if you just Google it, Jamie Driscoll Regional Wealth Generation, that calls for things like regional wealth funds. Um, the ability to get an earn back if you do uh, something that is actually creating money that inflates the national economy in terms of creating jobs, can you get a proportion of that payroll tax back? And it's it's the innovative ways of making sure that we do have more money, that we do reward good, sound, inclusive growth as well. We has to be inclusive, otherwise uh, you, you've got a race to the bottom. And when you've got that challenge, I mean, in the, in the northeast, we've got a tax base, a business rates tax base of £300 per capita. In London, it's £940 per capita. There is no way that just devolving existing taxes leads to a fair outcome. So you need mechanisms of balance, of redistribution. All that's got to be designed in. And that requires a very brave government, and I don't see one out there on the horizon at the moment. Um, Jessica? I think, I mean, look, we're, the, the starting point is we're incredibly centralised as a country, not just sort of politically and financially, but also in terms of our kind of expectations. So I think one of the one of the important aspects of fiscal devolution is defining what we mean by it. Um, as Ross said, there's a sort of really scary, uh, like extreme version that is complete devolution and the ability to set your own tax rate, which would lead to competition and uh, would lead to a sort of race to the bottom. And you sort of see some of that in um, America, where, where um, this state state ability to set um, uh, their own revenue and they, they compete for workers through lowering income tax or for business relocation uh, through corporate tax. But I think on the other end of the spectrum, I often find in an English context, we talk about fiscal devolution being a bit of tinkering around with council tax or sort of the long, long mooted and never quite properly delivered retention of business rates. We've got such a small proportion of taxation currently 
that has any local control. Council tax is the only tax that has any that is locally raised and locally retained. And it's subject to so many different um, uh, constraints by government. But it's also a really, really unhappy, regressive tax set, obviously, sort of 30 years ago on property value. So Jamie's right that there's, there's these sort of perverse consequences whereby actually our adult social care is largely funded by the, um, a tax that's related to how uh, property was valued 30 years ago. And it's, there's all these complete distortions within our system that I think we've got to sort of realise when you look at comparable countries, a degree of fiscal autonomy and control that's devolved from the centre to the subnational level is absolutely the operating norm. So there will be loads of reasons why you can't do it, why it's too difficult, why there's kind of inequality is going to result. But these are these are things that are managed very well in other countries through equalisation. So it really isn't, it, there's a middle ground in which you raise money, raise money locally, a lot of money, whether it's income tax or VAT, is generated locally and a little bit of that being retained by local areas to make decisions over how to best invest just isn't the most radical thing in the world and it happens everywhere else yeah really good really good point but you mentioned business rates there because when when we had the move to local government retaining 50 percent of business rates that was supposed to be kind of the start of a path to fiscal devolution and what we've actually ended up with is something quite meaningless because there's been a part of that is because there's been so much there has to be so much equalization and redistribution so isn't there a danger that actually you know that equalization process kind of renders it a bit meaningless I don't know what you what you think about that Jessica well I think the example of business rates is a bit like council tax they're 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 difficult taxes because they're based on property valuations. So there's all sorts of distortions that are not actually linked to necessarily linked to productive growth. So I think business rates was sort of mooted and then kind of not quite done and not quite like, you know, central government's kind of not quite letting go. But anyway, I think taxes like VAT, which is linked to business transactions or income tax, which is linked to the ability to how much people are earning in an area, they're proxies for productive activity. And if local, lo- the local level had more control over um, creating a productive environment for business transactions or um, helping people get into work and crucially progress within work, you'd be linking some taxation and some incentives to generate more productive activity to local areas. And I think that's what kind of gets missed. Sometimes we see local government finance as a separate thing to our kind of productivity and national economic growth. And there's no, there's no incentives, although councils do, but there's no incentives directly for them to help people into work. All the money from productive employment and productive economic activity goes straight to the exchequer. And I think that, you know, there's, there's what you would do now and, and, and the consequences of immediate fiscal devolution sort of overnight. But then there's how things would grow and what the kind of trajectory is for areas that are currently facing in, um, unequal outcomes. Um, how you would create a better state to kind of get that circular cycle of kind of investment and reward from growth and retain a bit of that locally. Of course, with equalisation and understanding different different starting points and capacities to raise revenue. But again, that's that's the role of the national the national layer to kind of understand that and redistribute accordingly. And that's completely the norm in places like Denmark and Germany, which have strong, robust 
methods of equalisation and a degree of fiscal devolution. Um, Jamie, I think you wanted... Yeah, and as Jessica says, that works very well. I mean, I've done work with um, with Bohemia and they have they have three different levels in Germany. You have the, the local, you have the, the land, what we would call the region or the city region area almost, and the national. And they work very well together. In fact, it's called the basic law in Germany. It's the foundation of their constitution. But I think it's important to hold two things in our minds at the same time. One, where we would like to end up. What is the basic principle of taxation of providing public services? Separate from that is the where can we get to from where we are now, the very pragmatic question. The danger is that all governments tend to tinker with the where are we now without any idea of where we want to end up. And we end up with more and more complicated sort of bits bolted on that really don't work, as as Jessica so eloquently described when we talk about things like business rates retention. So for me, there are those things that are about the provision of services. And then separately, there are those things about the growth of the economy. The, if, if you fall ill, you don't want your care to be dependent upon how well your council is invested in real estate across the country, because that actually implements, influences a lot of local government budgets at the moment. You know, we've seen the, the Section 114 notices going for, um, what is it, um, a billion pounds, I think um, some of them have had in real estate deals gone bad. Um, why have we forced local people to pay council tax in order to uh, be, be locked into this system of the performance of specific investments? So I think this is where we need to separate things out and make sure that... Um, to one extent, I mean, the, the role of a combined authority, for example, as the mayor of the North of Tyne Combined Authority, uh, our role should be job creation, should be skills, should be inward investment, should be all of those things that develop the productive authority. And the success or failure of that, and we're very successful here, should not determine whether um, parents um, have childcare available to them in their schools. We, we really must separate these things out. And I think that's the fundamental point when we talk about fiscal devolution. Sure, sure. So th- that point there about yeah, where we would where we would like to get to and where we are now, and I know, Ross, you kind of touched on that, but you, the proposal around the Treasury giving up 2% of income tax to local areas, why would they do that? Kind of, you know, what's in it? in it for them <laughs> it's a good question and i suppose some of it comes back to the argument which you know do you believe that in some form devolution of you know financial capacity can lead to better outcomes in terms of local economic growth you know giving more money to areas is you know is that something that you believe can lead to to higher to higher levels of growth and reducing inequality between regions if you don't believe that then you would never do it if you do believe that there's something in that, and then, you know, obviously considering we're in a fairly constrained environment fiscally, you know, borrowing costs are really high, interest rates are still quite high, all the rest of it, you know, you're trying to think about, I suppose what we've been trying to think about, what are the existing levers, you know, within the existing system, if you do believe that, you know, giving more money to local areas can lead to inclusive growth, better economic outcomes and that sort of thing, then, you know, what are the mechanisms to which you can get more money through that? And while being a bit innovative as well, and also while thinking about, you know, productive elements of the economy which aren't currently being captured locally you know like you know Jessica and Jamie both mentioned you know you think about council tax and that sort of thing you know 30 you know 30 year old property values as what's funding you know social care today you know if you were to redesign a, a tax system from scratch and someone recommended that you know it'd be you know it'd be ripped up straight away you'd think that's absolutely ridiculous why would you do that but that's where we are today um so it's I suppose it's thinking about the two how can you get more money into local areas to become a genuine drivers, genuine engines of growth, reduce 
disparities across different parts of the country within the constrained physical environment that we're in today? And how do you broaden the sort of tax base out locally so that local areas aren't so vulnerable financially? So they're not making sort of risky commercial decisions where if it goes well, it could go well, but if it goes wrong, it goes very badly wrong. Yeah, Jessica, what's your take on that? How how do how would you make the case to the treasury that they should do do this well i think it's quite simple if you give local areas a stake in how much income tax they would be able to retain you give them a stake in generating more of it so there's a pure kind of you know crude economic case that you sort of rewire some of the some of the incentives um that that currently exist nationally so where we've got such a kind of weak form of fiscal devolution at the moment there are systemic incentives for local authorities to support the development of uh, housing in high council tax bans and um, floor space hungry um, growth in kind of warehouse development, um, things that things that generate a lot of business rates because that's calculated on premises um, size. So if you rewired the the incentives, I, I, I believe, and I think that it kind of plays out with the fact that we've got this kind of productivity challenge. Um, you would, you would generate different incentives to, to kind of create productive activity and maybe support people not just into work, but to progress in work and um, earn more money. Um, and so I think that there's a there's a clear uh, financial case when you've separated those out. Um, it's it's clearly not where you know you can look at you can look at our recent history regional inequality is growing um, and there's this kind of productivity puzzle that's seen in isolation from how we how we fund and understand local areas but I think there's also you know the backdrop is that, that it's a, a financially constrained environment for councils so there's a tendency to then kind of pathologize the system of local government to say you can't possibly take on more power but I think you need to think a bit more medium to long term about how you're how you're generate how you're kind of supporting you know the maturing of the local and regional government layers um and improving democ- local democracy so for example in um Denmark where um 60% of income tax is retained by the municipal level which is kind of like you know unheard would be unheard of here um they have a turnout in their local elections which is the same as our national election turnout about 70% because guess what people care where their tax goes and it and it creates a much more kind of vibrant local democracy because people know people know where things are going so i think there's loads of reasons why it's all too difficult and it's all too impossible but i do think they're much more linked to the kind of treasury business as usual, quite centralised status quo, than they are to actually kind of questions about how you propel economic growth or enrich our democratic life. Yeah, really interesting. Um, Ross, you wanted to, to come back on that. Yeah, I think just, just very quickly on the treasury, I think there's a there's a fairly, it might be crude, but it's quite a simple argument to make the thing. We haven't, it's one of the one things that we just haven't really tried yet. You know, we're, you know, for several decades, we've had some form of regional policy always in action, you know, whether it's industrial strategy or something slightly different. We've always been trying to, as a, as you know, the sort of national government has always been trying to do something in some form or another about regional inequality, about regional growth. And sort of hasn't really worked. You know, if you look at the track record of the past 40 years, you know, if you were to go back 40 years and then look forward now, you think, oh, well, this hasn't really worked. We haven't done very well. What are the things that we haven't tried yet? which might work. And I think this is one of the things we haven't particularly charged yet. There may have been sort of slight incremental changes around some sort of things, business rates, for one example. 
but on the whole, it isn't something that's really been considered. And I would be thinking, if I was the Treasury and I genuinely cared about regional inequality and regional growth, what are the things that we could do which haven't really been tried that might have an impact? And I think with fiscal devolution, there's a growing evidence base, whether it's international, growing evidence base internationally and also a sort of growing collection of policy options which are being developed within this country as well, which you could look towards and think, actually, this is something which is, sort of addresses a lot of our concerns that we've had for a long time and could be worth pursuing. Yeah, sure. And Jamie, you kind of sort of fronted this this issue with the Treasury head on in your paper for the RSA because you talked about fiscal innovations rather than fiscal devolution. And talk, talk to us a bit about, about that. Absolutely. So uh, the north of Tyne at the moment is kind of half of the city region. Um, and there's a number of powers we don't have. I've spent some years negotiating with Treasury, with local leaders, with, with all sorts of government departments. Uh, we've now got the best funded devolution deal in the country coming into effect in May. The Ross really hit on the, the core subject there is do how do we get more effective economic performance? Now, for me, some of that is actually to stop measuring GDP and start measuring things that really make a difference, um, such as a, the well-being framework that we've implemented. Is it health? Is it educational outcomes? Um, democratic participation. All of these things are far more important than how much has the property prices risen because they, they make very little difference to people's everyday lives. So part of the process of going to Treasury was showing them the track record of how well we've done with the budget we've got. So adult education, for example, this is this is teaching welders and chefs and, and people like that. Um, that used to be controlled by central government. They got 22,000 enrolments a year. We worked with the suppliers locally. We worked with employers and said things like, if we run a scheme, will you guarantee people who've completed it an interview? Um, we worked with the learners and crucially the people who dropped out of courses is what were your barriers and it might be wi-fi at home it might be that their, their child care arrangements or their shifts made it impossible to go on courses that ability to work with everyone locally has allowed us for the same budget to increase from 22,000 enrolments a year to 35,000 enrolments a year and when you go back to treasury and say when was the last time a department got a 50 percent increase in value for money that is incredibly powerful and on a political level, talking to cabinet ministers, it's fair to say, not with my politics, um, and they were saying, yeah, we can't argue with that. And I said, right, so give us a bit more money on this. Give us, and we present the case. Now, that's almost like the, the incremental inching forwards politically. Um, but we've got to still hold in our minds what is it that good would look like ultimately. And, and just sort of touched on something earlier. And... Let, let, the elephant in the room here is that local government spending power has been slashed over the past decade. I think we're in, well, the LGA said we're on 27% fall in core funding since 2010. So the idea then that local authorities have these highly skilled teams available to go out and do economic growth and economic development, they just don't have because they cannot compete on a wage basis with the private sector. Um, and the other thing that a combined authority brings in is that ability to... Um, bring together private sector, third sector, local authorities, other parts of the public sector, and the ability that a mayor can do. If I was, if I was a, still a local councillor and I said, can I have a meeting with the chief exec of such and such a company? They wouldn't. If your mayor asks, then you can. And you've actually got that convening power to bring it together. So yes, it's the getting the money 
So it doesn't have to go through a loop of approval through central government to give you credibility so you can actually get stuff done. And that comes to other things like, you know, we, we at the same time need to reform land assembly powers, all of the things that are barriers to successful, sustainable economic growth. And uh, as long as you've got this long route of making business cases to Treasury, which then gets stuck in someone's top drawer for a couple of years, um, it's going to hold back all of our success. So as Jamie was kind of alluding to there, it is sort of mayors and combined authorities that have perhaps been sort of, I don't know, getting the ear of government most on these conversations. But but Jessica, is it is fiscal devolution... Does it need to be at a sub-regional level or is there things that could go down to local authority level? How how do you see that all kind of working? Yeah, I mean, I think I see, I can see that the, there's a case for the kind of sub-regional level or the kind of, you know, is it a bit old-fashioned to say city region, but where you've got a kind of, you know, urban cores and, and hinterlands over that sort of spatial scale, like the travel to work area is where you would capture people's kind of, where people live and where people generate their income in a, you know, largely uh, disproportionately in a in an urban area. So I think you kind of over that sub regional scale, you can kind of mitigate if you if you devolved a level of um, income tax or VAT to that level, you could. I think um, I don't think it's it's. I, I think the the local level though, if you were kind of thinking about upper tier authorities in some areas, does work, and obviously across county areas, that's slightly different than um, where we've got existing devolution architecture. One thing I would say is we've just got such a incremental approach to devolution in this country. Yes, we've we've got 10 years on from the original devolution deals. We've got a couple of trailblazers and they've got a single pot, which I would argue is not fiscal devolution because it's literally just existing funding put together. And, it, and let's not confuse it because we often we it, that often does happen. And Again, let's let's call a spade a spade. That's still kind of still in the context of centralisation. Um, I would say that it does need to happen everywhere. I know I would say that we because what we are talking about is a different stance at the centre and a different set of operating assumptions from the Treasury. So this is about this is about the Treasury rewiring how it works as well as um, local areas. And I think this kind of incrementalism. Where will we be in the next? Uh, 10 years well you know what a couple more trailblazers what's you know what's the kind of trajectory and I think as long as we've got a system of sort of opt out from certain things for some areas the rest of the system carries on business as usual and actually I think what we've got to do is just step up the pace a little bit to be a bit more radical no doubt it would be realistic for the trail, current trailblazer areas to um, be the ones to first move towards a, a, a a proper degree of fiscal devolution um but i think we need to have a bit, bit of a stronger sense of of where we're going to get to otherwise it will always be a weak version and then you can say oh well it didn't really work like with business rates retention you've actually got to put some some ambition behind it i think so and um, central government needs to recognize that doing this properly would mean big change for them it happened in scotland you know we've had scottish devolution welsh devolution is you know there's been a degree it's not it's not beyond the ken of uh, of of our system to kind of achieve it and as i and as i said before i don't it doesn't mean less money i think necessarily for the treasury it means less direct control but the incentives wired differently and the capacity nationwide to generate to generate more of it and we've talked about um the idea of existing taxes, so in portions of income tax or VAT being allocated to local areas. What about new taxes? Or should 
local authorities or combined authorities be given powers to raise new taxes and, and what might that that look like? Ross, I don't know if you, you had any thoughts on that. I think it's a tough... I mean, I don't think I have a fixed view or anything like that. But what I will say is that, you know, it's sort of we published research last week, which is looking at, you know, points to the fact that, you know, just to keep sort of public services running afloat, given additional costs of, you know, running public services, demographic factors, it is inevitable that over the next few years we're going to have to raise taxes. Um, they're going to have to go up just to fund public services or people are going to have to, you know, sort of expect a, a drop in performance, um, which, you know, given the sort of current state of things, I don't think the public would would be sort of rushing to accept. Um, so if, if you use that as your starting premise, the tax will have to go up. Then I think that on the other side of it, you know, I suppose, well, I suppose firstly, this, you know, do you just assume that that's all national taxation? If actually what you care is about sort of funding things locally as well, there may be an argument for new forms of local taxation there. But I think the other thing is, you know, if a, a local leader or a mayor can demonstrate, you know, this is an idea that we have, it would really sort of head on tackle an issue which is now in our community, very particular to us, we can demonstrate that it's not distortionary with other forms of taxation which have been set nationally, then I think it's going to have to be a very, very, very strong case against that um, coming from central government in order to sort of undermine it and argue that for whatever reason this isn't valid. So I don't know. I don't think I've got a fixed view in particular, but I think there is something about why not, I suppose. Like if you can, if, if a local leader can demonstrate, actually, this is, yes, it is a new form of taxation, but it, there, will, there will be a lot of benefits. It will sort of shut out some negative externalities and lead to better outcomes or whatever it is. And I think, you know, it might be quite difficult, you know, especially as calls for greater fiscal devolution continues to grow alongside the inevitable need that taxes will, will have to go up over the next few years. I think it's going to be a lot more difficult to sort of shut down that side of the argument. Jamie, as, as mayor, is there things, there's some taxes you would like to be able to introduce? Well, I mean, I have the power to raise taxes and I've never used it. Um, the main reason, if I stick a precept on the council tax, um, I mean, in Newcastle at the moment, 25% of people are on council tax support anyway. I mean, why, why would I do that? It, it's not going to actually generate more money into the region. And I think we've got to look at this in a macro sense. First of all, our current taxation system rewards a huge amount of tax dodging um, by the, the billions and trillions uh, of things that are, that are owned overseas and, and funded through, uh, sorry, sorry the, the, the taxations and revenues are funded through tax havens. Um, most of our infrastructure, by the way, including half of our bus companies and energy generation. So launching a hotel tax in a small area, that's not going to put even a dent in that. So that's something that, that some central government eventually is going to have to get to grips with. But currently, I can borrow any amount of money from all sorts of sources, not just the, the Public Works Loan Board. The challenge is how do I pay it back? And if I invested, for example, in a much better transport system, which is something I intend to do, and this is where the innovation part of it comes in, not just the devolution part of it, then that would save, a better transport system would save us hundreds of millions a year down the line on health because people are walking a bit more, the air's cleaner, all of these things. Why would I do that when the benefits accrue to a totally different funding stream? Why would I saddle my authority with that debt? I wouldn't. It's, a, it's disincentivized. But if we had a mechanism whereby you could demonstrate the savings and you had not just a negotiation, but this, the devolved right, that if you can show how you're saving money, you can get that portion of the hypothecated budget transferred, 
I could borrow the money. I could leave her in pension fund investment. I could get this entire thing built, show the results, and uh, and save us money, and we have healthier people in the meantime. So that's where we really need to start getting to, is why is it that so much money is spent from central government badly? Jessica, you want, you want to come in on that, and, and the, this question more generally of, are there any taxes that local government should be allowed to, to raise? Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a really important point when, when local government combined authorities are told it's all too expensive and it's all too complicated. It's really important to point, as Jamie just did, to the, the costs inherent in the current system and the wastage, which is sort of somehow priced in, whereas it's seen as very risky to, to consider more local control. Um, so I think I think that's a really that's a really important point. I think it's really important when we're talking about fiscal devolution again, as we said at the start, it's a very broad term. Um, so it's important to be clear, fiscal devolution doesn't necessarily mean more tax for people. It doesn't mean that normal people will be paying extra tax. What we've been talking about largely is some of the tax they generate anyway being retained locally. I think that's really important for kind of some national politicians who might be a bit scared that actually by saying that we'll do fiscal devolution, it's going to mean more taxes on people. It could mean better taxes for people because, as we said before, council tax, for example, is highly regressive um, and um, poorer people pay disproportionately more of their income than wealthier people. Um, so there are definitely uh, discrepancies that you could do by making local authorities less dependent on local on council tax. Um, but there are some taxes that just should be a complete, um, you know, in football speak, should be a sitter. Um, a tourist tax has been mooted for so long and it's it's kind of a win-win situation because residents don't pay it. People who come from the outside do pay it. It should be politically an easy thing to do. And actually Birmingham requested one from the government during the time of the Commonwealth Games and we refused it um, in order to fund uh, the investment around that. And I think that, you know, if you travel to the continent, you're quite used to paying a, a hotel levy um, as part of your, uh, just as part of the norm. And so I think that there are some, you know, that's an example of a very easy tax that shouldn't be politically charged, that could be something that would be trialled locally. And I think um, in Scotland, that's that's actually beginning to be seriously considered. Um, but I would I would be, I mean, I think one of the things you need to work towards is a system where lo- that you're sort of de-risking local areas. You're making them less dependent on single sources of revenue, and over time, growing up their kind of resilience and capacity to to adopt a much more mature approach to revenue raising and balancing budgets with the national area as a backstop. But it doesn't mean that we're saying right, you can kind of levy like this tax, that tax, this tax. In Japan, I think they've got millions of different taxes. You can have a, there's a golf ta- there's a golf course tax, there's a spa tax for their onsen. This kind all range of taxes so i think we need to i think we need to be careful we're we're talking about kind of rewiring how the existing tax system works a bit more effectively primarily yeah and and jamie you wanted to come back on that and i also wanted to ask you about because one of the things you talked about in your paper was land value capture which that is the kind of a a a new tax on people isn't it but yeah, tell, tell us about that. Yeah, I'm ambivalent about tourist taxes, to be honest. The, the people of the North East will always spend more time in hotels in London than the people of London will spend in hotels in the North East. So actually, it is a net wealth transfer, yet again from the regions to the centre. Um, so land value capture. 
Now, this is something that can be a game changer because you want tax, yes, to raise revenue, but you want also taxes to have a direct economic benefit, what an economist might call the Pejuvian tax. You know, we tax cigarettes to discourage consumption. There are other ways that we want to do things, such as land being held and not used, which is a huge problem for economic development. So every time the public sector puts in, say, a new light railway line, the value of that land shoots up. Who gets the benefit? Primarily land bankers, but quite often it's a windfall tax to existing landowners and homeowners. You know, I'm a homeowner. Um, So if we had a system where we put in infrastructure and it's it's very easy to administer, the entire land registry is digital these days, and you would uh, say, right, the value of this property has gone up by £30,000. When you come to sell it and not before, you give us back £25,000. We'll let you keep some of the, the windfall. Nobody has to pay a penny. They enjoy the amenity in the meantime, and the market takes care of it. But what it means is if I build a £100 million railway line, I can pretty much fund it straight away. No complicated bidding processes, no waiting for the political sign-off through central government. I can get the money. I can borrow it. I can raise it. um, I can build it. We get the economic growth, and nobody loses out. It is simply about unlocking the generation of wealth. Now, that's been proposed uh, uh, through the London Finance Commission initially, and uh, the former mayor of London, the one Boris Johnson, signed that off. Um, the Sadiq Khan has, has supported it. It is now, since I started campaigning on it, the official policy of transport for the north. Um, but it takes central government to do it. Now, we're already doing it. We've reopened the Northumberland line from Ashington into Newcastle, and we've got about £30 million through voluntary agreements with landowners. You know, We'll put a station there if you agree to, to, to make a contribution. What we need this is on a statutory basis, so you can put a charge on a property, because nobody loses anything. All it does is unlock the sustainable growth around better public transport immediately. Interesting, really interesting idea and so we've talked quite a lot about sort of the, the treasury resistance and things but obviously ultimately it's the politicians that are are making the decision and, and would have the sort of power to to make this happen um what do we where do we think the the main political parties are are at on this um can I um, tell you a little anecdote on this, uh, Sarah? I was talking to uh, an ex-cabinet minister, and he says, um, this was exactly on the subject of, of devolving power, and he says, you know, you get into your office, you've been waiting for years to get in there, and you start pulling on all the levers of power. Uh, and he says, and after two years, you realise the levers aren't connected to anything. Uh, <laughs> so you, you then start panicking about how you're going to get anything delivered. Two years, actually. I mean, how many cabinet ministers are in for two years these days? Um, so what always happens is in opposition, every party says, we will devolve. And then they get there and they think, no, we must make our mark. And they don't do it. So I think this is a case that we've got to be shouting and screaming and all the innovations we can to get different ways of demonstrating that you get better public service outcomes if you devolve it. You get better value for money if you devolve it. You get better economic development and more sustainable economic development if you devolve it. And you don't end up with weird debacles like HS2. Sure. And Jessica, where do you think there are? I know Rachel Reeves has apparently ruled out fiscal devolution but do do you think there's any there is any persuasion that that could be done there yeah i think 
I mean, I think one of the one of the things that's happening at the moment is repeatedly in the kind of policy community, we're getting calls for fiscal devolution, and it's 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 getting. I mean, I remember sort of five or ten years ago, you would have been considered highly highly unusual if you were sort of suggesting it in polite company. Um, so I think the momentum is growing in the kind of policy community. I think one of the challenges is, and it's kind of more of a challenge back to us really. We talk about fiscal devolution, we're all comfortable with the subject, so we kind of talk about it in the tech, tech, techie kind of terms that, that, um, that, that exist. Um, one of the things um, New Locals kind of called for is for a local tax guarantee, which we thought was a much better kind of political sell of what it would mean to retain a proportion of um, income tax to a local area. And I think one of the, one of the things about fiscal devolution is if it is misunderstood or it's uh, the implication is it's more taxes on people, um, then obviously national politicians are going to be quite wary of it. But I think if we're talking about it in terms of you know, in the context of people feeling that there's left behind areas, in the context of people feeling that that there's a there's a desire to take back control, um, which has not yet been fulfilled, which Labour recognises they've got a commitment to a take back control bill. Part of that might well be taking back control of the revenue that their work or their transactions and and buying stuff generates. So I think there's a if you if you put it in much more kind of human speak terms, um, I think there's a politically attractive offer there. And I think local people retaining more of the money they earn is um, much more popular than the national politicians would potentially credit. But it's down to us to actually sort of change the terminology and stop talking about it in technical terms, which is so easy and I'm culpable. Um, but, at, you know, if, if, if people understood what it actually meant and where their money goes and, and how it doesn't come back to them when it's just kind of consumed by the Treasury and, and um, allocated according to their terms. Yeah, yeah, sure. R- R- Ross, another member of the policy community, how... how- how are you thinking about this question? <laughs> I think there's, there's two things I'd say. One sort of, well, they're both on the politics, I suppose, but the first one is, as part of a research we published last week, which is on fiscal policy in general, options for reform, we ran a citizen's jury to sort of, you know, help us get together our own thinking about, you know, what might, not just to inform our recommendations, although it was very useful, but what, what sort of options around reforming, you know, fiscal policy, the tax base, whatever it may be, would the public be broadly on side with? And, you know, going, you know, Fiscal devolution being part of that, I think, was quite interesting because no member of the public, I think there was about 50 people sort of broadly represented of the uh, UK population, no one had had ever heard of the topic. Um, So there's quite a lot of work that we had to do in there to sort of, you know, bring people up to the speed, go through the pros and cons, did a bit of role-playing, all very fun. But the point of it was to sort of, you know, develop a sort of informed opinion between, you know, sort of different subsections of the population who might not necessarily come together to discuss these things and then develop a sort of jury's verdict. What do you think about this? And overwhelmingly, people supported it. So even then, when you go through the pros and cons, you demonstrate, you know, there could be a scenario where you devolve, you know, greater responsibility over spending and local government still makes a bad decision, whatever it may be. On the whole, people are even though I think the general public are quite risk averse, I think it was a sort of risk they were willing to accept because they could see the benefits. And I think within that, there's quite a convincing political argument that could be made off the back of that. I think you could tie it neatly into quite a nice story about people's areas, the connection that they have locally. And that's something that'd be quite sellable. And I think the other thing is, you know, I am a betting man, so anyone, someone could hold me to account to this, but I think there will be at least 
I would I would imagine there would be one political party at least that comes out with something on fiscal devolution, and there's two reasons that I say that. One is that the work that Harvard University have been doing on regional policy, they published a paper, I think it was last week or the week before, with loads and loads of interviews with different people across the policy community, including politicians, on devolution and regional policy. And Michael Gove, in his interview, sort of nodded to the fact that he thinks that sort of an end goal for devolution, or at least the next stage of it, is greater fiscal devolution. And I know a lot of sort of organisations affiliated to the Tory party have done quite a lot, of, a lot of good work in this sort of thing. And I think also the sort of a question of, you know, devolution is one of, you know, politically it's developing quite a lot of momentum. And I think there is something about the two parties in particular who are going to sort of come to the election and really want to demonstrate their credentials and reputation and sort of their vision for the next stage of English devolution, how it fits into their wider plans for the economy. And I think the pressure, considering the fiscal devolution, is growing in prominence and people are talking about it a little bit more. There will be a little bit more pressure, I think, internally, probably on both sides, to think, oh, is this something that we're going to commit to? Um, how do we think it feeds in? Is this something that we can demonstrate to show that we are quite bold, we do have ideas, and we do think that we could deliver something quite transformative? So there might be at least one. I don't know for sure. Um, I'm not writing manifestos, but I think politically there might be a little bit more interest in it this time than there might have been for previous elections. Interesting, yeah, and I suppose this, the, the fact that there isn't going to be any more money, so it's about doing things differently with the money we've got, isn't it, I suppose? Um, I think we're fast running out of time. Can we perhaps end by a little bit of sort of, I don't know, wishful thinking? You know, 10 years' time, what would you like the sort of funding landscape to look like for local government? Um, I'm gonna, Jamie, I'm going to co- come to you first. Core services, um, adult social care, um, looked after kids... Let's get that funded directly as the same way as we should fund the NHS and let local communities decide what they want on their leisure, their parks, with, with much greater freedom to choose their own taxes. And those things that are to do with the travel to work area and the economy, 10 years' time, I'm currently negotiating our trailblazer as part of our new devolution deal. Um, part of that is trying to get them to agree to things like land value capture. There is $400 billion in pension fund investment looking for a home. Give us the power to be able to work with that to increase the investment in our own economies by giving us flexibility on things like borrowing rates, on the actual devolution of central government spending, not just the delegation with a load of strings attached, um, and the power, if we need to, to supplement that with taxes. But don't just say, boom, you know, uh, once you give a mayor the power to raise taxes, central government say, we're not giving you anything, you've got the power to raise taxes. So we've got to be very, very wary of that trap. Interesting. Thank you, Jamie. Um, uh, Jessica, and, the, and then I'll come to you, Ross. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to separate out the sufficiency for running existing services argument for, for local government. In 10 years' time, I guess I'd love, in an ideal world, I would love to see a system whereby the centre has a responsibility for understanding local demands on services and needs and has a balanced funding formula that um, that allocates funding where it where it's desired and we don't get into a kind of um, London versus the north counties versus districts uh, Mets versus rural areas kind of uh, scrabble over what's sufficient we can just have a, a a kind of balanced discussion and understand that different needs exist in different places and they need to be resourced and so that kind of fair funding argument 
is separate to fiscal devolution. Um, but but it would be good at the same time to be building up. And I think that um, the Centre for Progressive Policy report is right to be calling for two percent of um, income tax as a start. I think that should be in, that that should be kind of incremental. It should grow over time. But it would be good to see a rewiring of how some tax that's currently generated uh, stays locally and has local discretion. And that would be then for local areas to have discretion over it. So that would be much more linked to the, their ability to invest in, in productive cycles of growth. And I would, I would hope then over time, the assumption would be we'd see a bit of um, regional rebalancing. And so that there would be a need for a, a system of equalisation. Um, but over time, that would, that would shift because I think that you'd get to a stage where in different parts of the country, there's different, um, different levels of ability to kind of respond and respond to economic opportunity. And so overall, we would have a clearer system of national, regional and local governance, different domains, and crucially on that kind of combined authority and local layer, getting back to this concept which is the original concept of collaborative governance so it's not seen as kind of this layer has this and this layer has that and it's kind of tensions between it and everyone's kind of trying to get stuff off of uh, central government but there's just clearly a more clearly recognized understanding of different domains different levels of governance for different levels of impact and fiscal devolution really is at the core of that. There's wider questions about constitutional protection for local government. So all of this isn't done on the kind of whim of a particular administration and then washed away when a new government comes in. Um, and I think that's kind of an important feature of this. But fiscal devolution, none of, none of that decentralisation and proper empowerment of local lev- the local level, none of that really properly happens without fiscal devolution. Thank you. And um, Ross? I agree with, you know, exactly what Jamie and Jessica have both said. So if it's all right, I'm going to be incredibly vague in my response about where I'd like to get to. But I think I think you come back to the fundamentals. Um, so the beauty of devolution, if you like, is that it allows you to blend together elements of economic policy and ec- elements of social policy at a sort of local or sort of regional level in order to very directly address issues which are particular to those areas to design policy to design systems which really respond to local issues and capitalise on local strengths and sort of that is I suppose the, the promise and the point of all of it alongside sort of enabling convergence between different regions as well and regional growth more broadly that's what it's all about so I think with the fiscal side of it not to be specific but I think the end goal would be to have all of the things that you know all the sort of technocratic the little nibbles the little issues around fiscal restraint in sort of enabling local leaders to sort of capitalise and develop their economic and social programmes in the way that they would like to, to take away as much fiscal restraint as is humanly possible to enable local leaders to sort of get on with doing that, which is their sort of core mission. So apologies, a little bit vague, but sort of going back to the fundamentals, that is, you know, what it's about. So just taking out the fiscal issue, restraint, little barriers, areas of efficiency where it doesn't really make much sense. And thinking about how you can facilitate what it's really about and what it's trying to achieve. Yeah, I think that's kind of it's a nice, neat way to end us because it kind of brings us back to that point of maybe we don't need to, we should stop talking about fiscal devolution and exter- and start talking about the sort of individual ideas and and their, judging them on, on their own merits and, and their their own the, their own uh, ambitions. So thank you all very much for your time. Great discussion. Um, really appreciate it. Uh, and thank you all for listening we'll see you next time on the local authority if you enjoyed this podcast please make sure you like and subscribe Uh, we'll see you again soon
Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Local Authority, brought to you by Local Government Chronicle. You can listen to the full back catalogue of episodes on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or by visiting lgcplus.com forward slash podcast. We'll see you next time for another episode of The Local Authority.